knowing that I'm alone in a bathroom and it's the last thing I'm ever going to do, the loneliness of that act, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't move any closer to that loneliness. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Why? Well, there's a few reasons, but mostly to help more people in more places feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. That's about it. Now, if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. As always, check the show notes for all kinds of other ways you can get involved, contribute, learn more, and help us out if you would. If you listen on Apple, rate and review Suicide Noted. It helps a lot. Keep in mind, we're talking about suicide on this podcast. Like we do every Monday, we don't hold back. We realize it's not a great fit for everybody. Take that into account before you listen or as you listen, but I do hope you listen because there's so much to learn. Today, I'm talking with R. R lives in California, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, R, how you doing? I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? Ditto, ditto. Those are not real books behind you, are they? No, this is fake. <laughs> That's a great start to the conversation right there. I love it. You know, I commend you very highly for creating this podcast. It would be a better world if more people listened to it. Well, I appreciate that. So tell me, R, what does R signify? R is the initial of somebody very significant to me who committed suicide. Actually, two R's in my life committed suicide. Of all the people that I've known who committed suicide, who ended their lives, I hate the word committed, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, ended their lives, they were the two most emotionally close to me. That must have been beyond difficult. Yes. Or perhaps still is. Well, I think it's difficult, but I think one of the difficulties about it is the way that other people in my life reacted and sort of positive and not not so much. There were people that reacted because of their own need for denial. It was too uncomfortable to hear that this was the kind of loss I had. And then there were people that reacted kindly by listening, not judging, hearing what it meant to me or what these people meant to me. Mm. So it's really more about uh, reading your audience and knowing where it's okay to disclose. And sometimes you don't learn that until after you disclose, right? Yeah, right. There were some really inappropriate reactions I felt. So I think for those of us who lose somebody in, in any way, then you, you're up against your audience's limitations. Right. So whether you're discussing your own attempts or somebody that you've lost, and I'm not saying anything here that I don't think anybody knows particularly if you've gone through either or both, that yes, know your audience, right? As best you can. Because I know there are people that need to hear the stuff that we don't often talk about. That I have 
no doubts about. So if you've heard the podcast, you probably have a sense of that. I do. And I, I also recently watched an interview with you with a woman from NAMI. Oh, really? Yeah. Where did you find that? Was that on my like YouTube or something? Yeah, I think so. And this goes to the two questions of how did I find it and why am I doing this? They're related in that I, at times, I think that the loneliness or the aloneness of living with chronic suicidality with acute episodes, but kind of a constant chronic background, I get curious about how this is for other people. Mm -hmm. So I look for other people who need to relate about this, need to talk about this, because I hope that it helps me feel like there's maybe somebody out there that would get me on this level. Because I think I'm a lot older than a lot of the people I've heard on your site and some other sites that I hope some way my perspective might be helpful to someone. And I'm also an ex-therapist. so. I'm not looking to cure or fix anyone or tell anyone what to do, but I do have a lot of years of perspective. Yeah, for sure. I've had a lot of conversations with hurt people and been in and out of a lot of therapy myself. One of the things that's also drew me and something I wanted to say is that at different phases of my life, I reached out to what is called suicide prevention organizations. I finally understood why reaching out to them left me feeling so much worse, so much lonelier. And that was, I realized that as soon as a licensed person hears that there is the potential for suicide, Mm -hmm. the focus on you, the client, patient, whatever you want to call it, changes. And the focus is all about protecting your license, becomes all about protecting the agency. Risk, Risk mitigation right away. Absolutely. And so you, the person in so much pain that you had to reach out, is suddenly dismissed. And the focus becomes the person with the license. That is a reason why I would never reach out to an organization like that. Yeah. It's not what I need. I don't want I don't want it to be about you. I'm calling because it needs to be about me. Yeah. You had mentioned you have a lot to say about therapy or therapists, I have a lot to say because this comes up a lot. I have strong feelings and I'm always wary, even though I do tend to share them because I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I haven't spent a ton of time in, I've never worked for example, in that kind of organization other than the crisis text line, which I volunteer with them for quite a while. All that said, I believe without having data, I just think that prevention is just an awful word to use there. I have almost no doubt it causes far more harm, meaning suicide. Mm-hmm. A strong statement. And if I'm wrong, I'm a complete asshole. I'll, I'll, t- I'll 100% take that on. When you turn okay. the opportunity off for people to ever reach out again because of that, what you shared, how many people, and then people you know who you might say, you shouldn't do that, not a good idea, think about twice about it. How many people are in that space? A year from now, a month from now, whenever are going to end their lives. They don't go for help that may or may not be available. That's what scares me because... You, you said in your interview with NAMI that, and I think it's really, really important, people in pain need to be heard. You know, I went a very wise woman that was a lot older than me at the time said, sometimes all you can do with someone is proverbially take their hand and go for a walk with them. Just be with them. Hear them. Because I think that's the only way to touch the loneliness of feeling that way. I've even said in 
many years ago on one of these such calls, because I had the impression that if I call a place that deals with suicidal people, that I'm finding depth and wisdom. And I wasn't, I was finding law and order. But I, I also want to be careful to say, like you, I'm not discouraging anybody from calling. I just think someone needs to be real about what it means. And that I, there are some things they say that the police could be at the door and they could be taken on against their will. And I think people need to understand that that can happen. I have said, can I just talk? I just need to talk. No, you can't. Yeah. Not without that hanging over you. And who would ever do that, knowing that? Right, exactly. And on a smaller scale, if you, let's say my friend or my cousin or my coworker, if you're going for that proverbial walk or maybe literal walk, and then you do the things that tend to make me feel like you're just trying to fix it or fix me or whatever else, that registers. The next time I want to talk, I'm less likely to do it. Mm -hmm. But I know what's coming. I think I understand why. Presumably you mean well little less likely. How many times is it going to take me or most people to say, I'm not going to that person anymore? To me, yeah. that's the real crisis. And that's not the only one, but it's not discussed much. It's on here it is, but hard to so, measure that. We like numbers and tangible things and measurability. You can't measure that. Right. But I think that one of the, you do have to know your audience. Yeah. And sometimes you learn the hard way that you think, a particular friend or therapist or somebody's got the depth and the layers to hear you, they get it. And then you find out, no, well, you're not going to go to that person again. You 100%. may have to completely reorganize who's significant in your life and learn how to choose different people. Or maybe you don't have many people. Now, I know we're playing this sort of like dialogue dance and we both are mostly on the same page, but this is for the audience. Like what happens when somebody has nobody to talk to and they're not doing well? I mean, come on. I struggle with this a lot. I isolate and it's for good reason. Like I needed to not put myself in a position where people might say stuff like that or a bunch of other things. But that comes at a huge, there's a huge cost to that. It does. From my perspective, if I look back every five or 10 years, you kind of have to clean house. You know, you have had some growth. Maybe the people coming along with you for the last 10 years or 30 years, or whatever it is, maybe they're growing differently, maybe mm. they're stuck, maybe they think they've solved what they need to for who they are. We can have activity people, you know, whether you're going to go on a bike ride, or go to the game, or, you know, you, you can have that, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you need someone to be real with you, yeah. that's when you have to look at who, who are you surrounding yourself with. And cleaning house is painful, but I recommend it. So R in California has lost, you've lost two people to suicide. Uh, maybe more like eight. Wow. Okay. Uh, you, I think I'm using this correctly. If I'm not, please, of course, correct me. Acute or chronic suicidality? Yeah. I have chronic suicidality with acute episodes. Sounding like the therapist that you are or once were. I like it. All right. Mm -hmm. Got to keep the terminology correct. I, I made that up and I've read tons of books on suicide academically. Never quite seen it put that way. I want to, of course, ask you about what you've gone through. What brought you to the point of wanting to seek out something like this? I was internet searching suicide. And I think that's how I found it. I listen to podcasts regularly. So I'm pretty savvy with the world of podcasts. And I may have put it into my 
podcast search engine and found it. Were you looking because you're a therapist and you were trying to get research or was it? No, I was looking for my own comfort. I had found another suicide site, you know, like an online, people can write whatever they think and you can read people's experiences, people that are, they tend to be actively looking for a way out. When I'm at my worst emotionally, I go on that site and I read what other people write. They're not necessarily speaking my language, but there's nuggets. And there's something about the degree of emotional suffering where the loneliness of that kind of suffering gets to be too much. If I read what other people are writing about what it's like for them, you know, I mean, to the point of saying, you know, I've got all the materials I need and I'm going to be going tomorrow. It's not a site where you talk somebody out of it. You don't talk somebody into it. You just hear where they are. That's what I use for my comfort. I was also, I was looking for something in addition to that, because that can also be a lot of really young people. As much as I appreciate that site, I felt like I needed something else. I'm glad that you get something out of that for sure. Yeah. yeah, I do. I think about the age thing. Of course, I immediately like, I wonder why that is. And my brain goes to two things. One, we get older, fuck it. No one's going to understand. I'm, t- I'm through with this shit. No one gets it. So you just, you know, it's, uh... but the other thing is just technology. Yeah. It's likely to understand podcasts, use podcasts, find even Google. If someone's older, they're doing other things maybe, which I wish I could do more of like, I don't know, read a magazine or go for a walk or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, I do. And also what I've noticed, like when I was 12 or 13 years old, little girls were horrible to little girls. I mean, that's never bullying and all that. It's always been. But I don't know any little girls that were brutalized that thought about ending their lives. And then years later, I'm reading about, you know, Megan Meyer and Phoebe Prince. And I'm reading about these girls that were bullied 12, 13, 14, 15. And they do in their lives. And I think what's different? Because in my baby boomer generation, we didn't know how to do that. I didn't know anybody at that age that ended their life. But then I start reading about now, some of it's the internet. One of the young girls who ended her life, I believe her name was Megan Meyer, some girls at her school and one of the girl's mothers who was particularly savvy pretended to be a cute boy that had a crush on her. And she was a very insecure little girl. And then they bullied and ridiculed her. They had the boy say, you know, you're too ugly and I would never go out with you. And how could you think I liked you? And just slammed her. And she ended her life. And another girl's mother helped this process. I think like a lot of us, it was a fragile young girl and they knew how to hurt her and they just did it for fun. You know, then you get into what's the difference between a little girl treated that way who ends her life and another little girl treated that way who doesn't. And I think that opens the door to why I or you or anybody else on this site differentiates themselves in the way they try to manage their own pain. Some people manage pain with substances, some people with you know, workaholics, some people with, you know, endless multiple relationships. A lot of people have a lot of pain, but not everybody goes there. Well, why did you go there? You're going to do my job very well from thank you. Yeah, this is about you, right? 
I'm guessing, I, I could be wrong here, but given your work, or perhaps the kind of people that get drawn into that work? Nobody pursues becoming a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, because their family origin worked out for them. <laughs> I mean, nobody gets curious about mucking around in the depths of despair if they're not curious about you know their own process. And that's my bias. Most of the people in psychology programs, when I did this, we were hurt. And we were searching and we were trying to understand ourselves. And we thought by understanding ourselves, we might be of use to other people that were hurting. And um, that was sort of the purity of it. Again, there were other kinds of people in it, but I was in it out of um, intense curiosity. And again, and I'll, I'll say a couple things about this because I, I have a feeling I know what you're thinking, but <laughs> I, I came from a really difficult family of origin situation. And it certainly did not leave me with a modicum of self-esteem. I really had no building blocks of believing in myself from my upbringing. So it was very painful. It was isolated, no nurturing, a lot of emotional neglect. It occurred to me in, in therapy for myself at one point, there were three sentences never said when I was growing up. One of them was, I love you. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Or thank you. Never. Ne- never. That's like a, almost a perfect one-page handout for any parent. Yeah. It's help, it helps if you mean it, too. <laughs> yeah. Not just say it. I mean, some people can fake it. And I would say, oh, maybe that's yeah. better than not saying it. I don't know. I love you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. And there's one for me. I This won't be the Sean show, I promise. But I interject here and there. I'm sorry. That's the one for me. Of course, the others are important for me. Say you're fucking sorry. And man, that really does, it creates this angst that you, it's like hard to get out of it because you're always like, ah. I was also, uh, I'm the youngest. I was an accident. I was not planned. And my mother was miserable that she was having another one. I think by the time I showed up, um, she was done. Their marriage was done. Stayed together, but they were done. I had a sibling who was on the spectrum. And nobody knew what that was then. Had he lived, he would be 75. And so when he was five, so 70 years ago, they didn't know what Asperger's or autism or learning disabilities. You just had the weird kid in school. So I had a pretty strong identified patient in my family. There was a lot of strife around that. There were a lot of strife around a lot of things. I came out of it somewhere very deep in me believing that I shouldn't be here. I wasn't supposed to be here. I'm a mistake. I, I kind of lost the nature-nurture wars. I used to go to therapists. They say, well, what do you, what do you want out of therapy? And I'd say, I want to wake up in the morning and believe I have a right to be here. How do you do that? Because when you don't have that, you look for externals to feed you. It's funny. I asked my husband. I am married, but I found a good relationship later in life. But I, I asked my husband if you're in love with somebody and they, they turn the light off and say, okay, I'm done, right? He said, he goes, well, you know, they're just stupid. They don't know what they're missing. Yeah, right. And right. I said, yeah, your mother loved you. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're, you know, you were raised, you were adored. You were an adored person by your parents. That's a whole different way of being in life. Well, I had one question. I have several, but one question in particular, when you said you want to wake up and have the feel like you have the right to be here, is mm-hmm. that, is that the, uh, that's the best word, the right? Mm-hmm. Is that different than I want to wake up and feel like I want to be here? They're different. And I think they both are valid. For me, it's like, I want to feel like I 
want to be here and I'd like to feel like I can be acceptable here. I can feel acceptable. Or I used to say to therapists, I have no self-esteem. Like we're talking zero. I'm going to segue. It's just an analogy. I think you'll appreciate What is therapy? Let's say you needed to buy a refrigerator and you go to Best Buy or whatever you use. I buy a refrigerator. And the guy says to you, well, you can buy it and it costs $400, but you need to leave it here and you need to come here once a week and give me money just to believe you have it. If you want to take it home, you can, but I can't promise it's going to work. I can't tell you it's going to keep your food cold, but you need to come here every week and pay me for it. I have no guarantee if it's going to ever work for you. Right. I'm not buying Would you buy that refrigerator? No. Okay. What's therapy? Come here every week. Give me money. Maybe you'll feel better. Maybe you'll make progress. And if you don't, come here every week and give me money anyway. This is coming from a therapist. Yeah. Because therapists are just as volatile and better or worse at what they do than any other profession. Oh, I've had a lot of conversations about this stuff. I know. Yep. Yeah. But therapy, it's a little different than some other profession. If I have a shitty accountant, it's a problem. You know, you understand we're talking about this stuff. That's the work. Yeah. A little different than having a shitty vendor who's selling you rotten strawberries. Higher stakes, maybe. I feel like I want to teach people how to be better at picking a therapist and knowing when to step away. Can we save that to the end of the conversation? Okay, sure. I love it. I just want to make sure we're getting to your personal, given what you shared about how you were brought up, I don't know how you navigate the world with that as the sort of, whatever the word, the anchor. Like, how do you do that? What does it look like in elementary school, in high school, college? You made it through, you're here, but still it seems like, what? All I can say is so obvious, it's so hard. All the issues of peer acceptance and navigating friendships and boyfriends. For someone like me, the stakes were bigger. I never wanted to be needy, so I was always hiding myself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of hiding. I mean, even today, too. I mean, that's a theme for me, that if I wanted the other little girls to play with me and be friends with me, I'd be funny. I was Mm -hmm. a good athlete. I was nice to everybody. You know, you get into the things of being too pleasing, too nice, too accommodating in some ways, fearful of getting angry, fearful of doing anything where someone's not going to like you, not showing, you know, distaste if somebody's abusive instead of going, you know, fuck you, you're being abusive, but trying to just step back and get away. And I sort of picture like, you know, a fight and you're just ducking all the time. You're hyper perceptive. You have to see what's going to happen before it happens. And you got to duck before it gets you. Once you uh, get smacked or sliced or you know punched, whatever, you go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I don't want to get hurt. You know, there's two kinds of kids on the playground. You get smacked and you think to yourself, that hurt. I'm not going to do that again. And it hurts so badly. I'm never going to do it to anyone else. Or you have the kid that says that hurts so badly. I'm going to find somebody to do that to because I'll feel better. You know, so you have to learn how to recognize the difference in those two kids. If it hurt me, I knew I'd never do it to anyone. And so a lot hurt you. Yeah. And now I'm sounding like a therapist and I'm not. I have no idea what I'm doing. And Paul isn't paying me anything. This isn't therapy. (laughs) Believe me, if you want therapy, I'm not your guy. A lot of fear management, a lot of fear of rejection management. So tiring, isn't it? 
It's exhausting. And all the while, various points in your life, you also have other relationships you're trying to manage. Like you've got to do your schoolwork. You've got to pick up your dry cleaning. You've got to get the car taken in for an oil change. The wonderful world of perfection comes in here. Right. And, you know, perfection is really fear of making a mistake, right? Because you don't want the negative energy. If you ever make, oh my God, if you make a mistake and someone gets mad at you or they don't like you or they reject you or they hurt you or you lose your job. I, I'm really liking this conversation. I usually like in the first 10 minutes, I'm like, let's get to the suicide. Do you remember? Now we're diving in. Do you remember the first time you thought about suicide beyond waxing philosophical? Yes. I think that because of what we just talked about, I became very depressed and I had insomnia around age 15 when I saw the pairings and unpairings of friends and crushes. I think that's when it first occurred to me that I was putting enormous importance on getting male approval. The highs and lows of that. I was also putting a certain amount of importance on certain female friendship approval. And, and girls can really be awful to other girls. That's when I started wondering about whether I think my term, my terminology then, I wouldn't use it now, but my terminology was, am I strong enough to be here? So I was very good at school. School was sort of like not an issue, but the social issues, getting along and wanting to know these people or be friendlier with this person or having a crush on this person, that world as it unfolded became very dangerous for me. I was 17 when I attempted to do my first attempt. And I had my first serious boyfriend, madly in love, crazed, light shining on me. I imagine it's what taking heroin is like. You're just high in love, mm -hmm. right? He went away to college before me, and I used to visit him at his college. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was in a, a dorm with three other guys that became his new best friends. And they were you know, 18 away at college in a great part of the world. And they were into drugs and alcohol in a way that I wasn't. And he transferred his light and his fascination from me to this new, exciting college life with guys and drugs. And, you know, it was the 70s. So it was very, uh, very exciting time. I could tell every weekend I was getting less attention. And I went up one weekend and the light was off and he was ending it. He wanted to just, now I can say it now, be at college and be a guy and be an 18-year-old guy away at a great college. So when I knew we were done, he was living in a very tall building and my instant reaction was to go to the elevator and I was going to go to the roof and jump off. I was sure I was. So I packed all my stuff and I put it in a corner, didn't write a note or anything. And I took myself up to, you know, however many floors it was. And I knew that on the top floor, there was like a lookout part where you could just walk off the building. And I'm going up the elevator at one of the floors on the way up, a guy, probably a guy, maybe a little bit like you, came into the elevator, you know, and in those days, everybody had long hair and looked friendly, right? Not that much like me. Well, no, <laughs> he was like counterculture, sweet face guy, right? Mm -hmm. He got in the elevator and I, I was literally, I was standing with my back against the elevator with my arms folded. He looks at me and he goes, hi, my name is whatever. What's your name? I told him. He says, where are you going? I said, I'm going up to the roof. He goes, oh, so am I. I'll go with you. Okay, not intimidating. Could have been Charlie Banson in those days, but wasn't. We go up to the top and at the top 
floor, as high as the elevator would go, there was like a big room with like couches where, you know, students could come and sit and talk on the couch and see this beautiful view. And, you know, and he said, why, why don't you come sit down with me? I said, okay. And I'm crying. I'm sure I'm just crying and crying and crying. Yeah. I said to him, he goes, do you want to tell me where you're from? And I did. And I told him. I told him what Everything. happened. Everything. All the details. Including where you were going. Yeah. Ooh, wow. God, I could start crying now. It's really, it still really gets me. Whew. So, and he did what you talked about. He listened. He sat with me. He listened to me. He asked me kind questions. No judgment. Hmm. He was not a predator. He wasn't like, hey, 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 you know, come with me. I mean, no, no sense of predation, which is very common then and probably now, still now. I think I sat on that couch with this guy for like four hours talking about life. Wow. Just talking about life, about everything. And I told him that my boyfriend used to take all the public transportation to the airport with me to make sure I got to the airport okay when I went home and that he wasn't going to do that anymore and I'd have to take all the buses by myself. And he says, I'll go through the airport. Mm. So he took me by all these buses, took me to the airport, saw me off on the plane. I will never forget him. Well, yeah, of course not. Now, if this was a fictionalized sort of movie, loosely based on your life, this is the guy that ends up coming back in years later, and that's your now husband. <laughs> it's not that, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever speak again? No. That's amazing. He saw this broken little girl. I think for some people, helping is innate. He yes. didn't have to be a therapist. He didn't have to be anything. He just was there. And I know from that and other yeah. things, and I'm sure you could say this about yourself, I have done that for people. A little aside, I was, I was 23 and I was on a bus from here to there. And a woman, a young woman, like 18, sat down next to me and she started to cry. And I said, what? And she said, I got married. I have a baby. I hate being a mother. I don't want to be a mother. I hate it. And I said, oh, wow. Well, tell me what it's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's like some of us just show up. I, I agree that some people are just that way. I also think there's a pretty good chance. Let's use that person as an example on that day in the, in the dorm where maybe he's felt that way. Well, maybe someone close to him has felt that way. So he gets a little more. You know, that kind of experience, you get it in a different way. It's not just out there. To me, there's two words that don't, two expressions or questions that don't get used enough. You said one, what's that like? Everybody wants to be asked that question. That's like the starting point to understanding or like trying. The other one for me, I'm just going off on a slight tangent is, what do you mean? Because I think often the conversations we're having, we're not actually having, we're basing it on two different things. If I say I'm depressed, what I'm meaning might not be what you think I'm meaning. Right. What do you mean? And what's that like? I'm telling you, this world changes if people ask those questions a lot more. Yeah. Or what happened? That too. Sure. What happened? I, I look back on it as I tell you, really, it's just like, wow, it's like still in there. Now I can say, I learned so much from him wow. about just showing up. And I was 17. And he was probably, what, 18, 19? Something like that. I don't even know if he went to that school. I don't, even, I don't know where he came. He, he was almost, it almost sounds like he was like an angel. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the other thing about being me and, and why being me is so damn hard is I don't believe in anything. Okay. You know, I'm not a religion person. Yeah. I'm not a pa patriotic, like my country, 
right or wrong. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a patriotism person. I'm not a religion person, and I'm not really a family person. I don't really have family that I can go. Oh, my family is ever. Oh, I came from the best family. I'm yeah. so close to my family. Yeah. No, and I don't have an allegiance to this country because I believe in ethics. I have an allegiance to the ethics yeah, yeah. that occasionally happen, but not enough. And I am an anti-theist. I'm not, I'm, I'm not about religion at all. And so for me, I only believe in me. If I'm going to make it, it's because of who I am or how I am or what I learn or if I'm smart or if I'm perceptive. And if I don't make it, well, it's because I'm broken and, and I blew it or I, it's, it's, I'm the only one responsible for what happens to me is what I'm saying. A lot of pressure. Yeah. It sounds like, um, and, I, and a lot of what you're saying, actually, I, I relate to, um, I don't always, feeling of almost being super untethered. Yeah. Not tethered to a particular community, group of people. It's like mm-hmm. floating. Yeah. What's my peer group? And you're floating and broken. Well, you didn't use that word, but my weird brain goes to, how do you not attempt to take your life when you're doing that for a long time? I, I mean it. And I know that's yeah. for some people would be like, that's an awful thing to say. I'm, gl- I'm glad you're here, but. How do you go on for decades in that space? It's astounding to me that people get through that. Well, and I think it's the difference between I did something wrong or I am just wrong. Yeah. The, the whole being is just wrong. That's where the, the chronic suicidality is, is there's a baseline of, I'm just not okay. No matter what you do. Yeah, no matter what. It's just what, what it, whatever the things are that make me me, are not okay. I don't feel okay in my own skin. When I feel that I'm the only one responsible for being okay in my own skin, I don't have some external belief system to go, okay, well, come on. No, it's me. That's it. Do you think if that angelic young man doesn't come on the elevator, you you die at 17 years old? Do you go through it? I don't know. I can't, I can't, I don't know. I was literally the elevator door open and I just felt I was just going to just go in a straight line. Just boom. Don't think about it. I always ask this question or tend to ask this question. It could be about any of the attempts. I think there's at least one more because you use the plural. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Has there ever been a point in your life, and I guess maybe more now than ever because we're talking now, where you wish he hadn't shown up? Oh, sure. I used to say, and it's interesting that we're talking today because I feel feel a little different, but I used to say, so that was at 17 and I, I'm 25 and I go look back and go, if at 25, someone said to me, this is going to be your life. Do you want to do it or not? Like you're in, you know, whatever limbo somewhere between lives. If you think that way, I'm just using it as again, a metaphor, but you're between lives. And someone says, here's a movie of, of your next life. Do you want it or not? 99% of my life, I would have said, no, I'd rather have not done this because there was so much more suffering than Mm -hmm. I think any human being could have, could withstand. Well, just to be clear, when you say I would rather have not done this, you mean live? Live. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. today, if someone said, we can erase all this and this, this is, this was your life all these years, would you have rather done it or not done it? And I'd say maybe now 90% of me would say, I would have rather not done it. And then you have, and then, and that's why it goes back to what you said before. Well, well, why not do it? I mean, if I feel like I'm running in the nineties of not wanting to be here, why not do it? My numbers got a little better. And I have said, this is really 
unfair and arrogant, but you know, I'm not hiding, trying not to hide with you. Mm, Thanks. That I don't know anybody that would wake up me tomorrow or 10 years ago or 50 years ago and spend 10 minutes as me and not want to end their life. And so you get into the thing of, am I the strongest person on the planet or am I the most broken? Because I'm still here. Those aren't mutually exclusive, are they? No, they're not. You're battling wanting to be alive every day and you, you don't die. Right. Somehow always, I don't love the word choose. It is a choice, but I sometimes think that word gets weirdly used. But in a sense, you're just deciding not to die day by day. That means you're actually continuing to live with your brain and your body and your memories and your trauma and all of it. That to me is like as tough as you get. You know, not to take from 12-step programs, but it's like one breath at a time. Yeah. Really. (laughs) There are times that it's one breath at a time. One of the things that's so hard, I know you relate to this, is I feel like I'm always living with a huge secret. This is my secret. The people in my life don't know this. Nobody. One friend. Like my husband kind of knows it. Part of a successful relationship is prioritizing the we above the I. If I prioritize the we, I can't deliver this to him all the time. I have to be a good partner. Otherwise, don't have a partner. How long have you been in this partnership? 25 years. So if I would have told you or asked you, I should say, I'm doing the math here, at 25 years old, can you envision yourself having a partner in which you can't be fully open and honest about this stuff? Then would you have said, no way, I can never do it? Something that you had to learn to like, no, I may not get to be fully open about this stuff all the time. I just have to compromise. It took me a lot of early life partners to learn your partner is not necessarily the person you hand everything to. But one of the reasons I'm with him is because we can talk about anything. And I have talked about this to some degree. He has the layers and the depth and the intelligence to keep up with me and go everywhere with me. I describe it as that between my ears is infinity, just like the universe. And if I'm going to bond with someone as a good friend and certainly as a partner, I have to feel their infinity also that you may not necessarily muck about in the dark stuff all day and night, but if you have to, they're capable of going there. Right. Whether it's the listening, the support, what I can do is I can turn to him and say, I'm having a really hard day and I need to be alone and I'm just going to curl up and read all day because I need to withdraw. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to take my space. He's very independent. I'm very independent. I don't want to scare him with how intensely I live with this. You don't, think he, you don't think he knows the intensity of it? I think he knows some of it, but I think he also needs to know that he matters enough for me to stay here. Does he know that you're talking to someone about this subject? No. Will he know? I don't know. Pretty sure he's not going to just stumble upon the podcast, so we're safe there. Oh, no. Right. It's he, very unlikely. Yeah, he's not wired this way. Even if you listen to podcasts, I'm not like Joe Rogan. I don't just pop up. <laughs> Like you gotta, you gotta look for this pretty hard. You gotta look for this. I I wish you were a little different, but it's true. Yeah, I have to assume somebody listening to this, even if they recognize my voice or they think they do. Well, why are you here? I mean, there's probably a small percentage of people who are just super curious. Who knows why, right? I mean, lurkers. Yeah, most people. Why do they get into therapy? Why do they listen to? It's like you're just trying to feel the thing, learn the thing, connect. Yeah. That's the reason I would look for something like this. And when I did, guess what I found? Nothing. Wow. 
So this is the first time in my life I can say, I'm just going to make the damn thing. Here we are. You were 17 on the building. You got home. You went back to your life. This is not a Disney movie and everything just worked out beautifully. You wouldn't be on the, you probably wouldn't be on the podcast. Maybe you would, but I know there's another attempt. So I'm going to assume, correct me if I'm wrong, between attempt one and attempt two, you're ideating. Yeah. What happened? I think I'm about 32, 33. A little embarrassing to say, same kind of thing. Madly in love, series of uncomfortable circumstances. It's over. I think I would have said at the time, I really didn't think I could live with that level of rejection. Didn't think I could survive the loss. So I decided I can't survive the loss. I had a really good friend come over so I didn't have to be alone, spend Mm -hmm. some nice time with me. I had had an acquaintance about a month before take his life. I didn't know him well, but I'd met him. I liked him. And then I found out he ended his life. Someone told me how he did it. And I thought that was a good idea. So I went and procured all of the things I needed to do it that way. Were you seeking a way for it to be painless or as painless as it could be? Yeah. One of the main reasons I'm still here is I I couldn't guarantee painlessness and I couldn't guarantee that I wouldn't get my stomach pumped. I didn't want to suffer any more. That if I had an easy way, believe me, I wouldn't be here. So if I did the, I call it a pink and purple pill thing where I gave you the pill and you're just, you don't wake up, you take it. There'd be various points in your life where you're like, give me the pill. Oh my God. Hundreds, hundreds. If it was, if it, if I could have done it like that, Absolutely. And you know, I asked that because I do think that's a big reason why some people don't don't want to be in a lot of pain. I've already been in enough pain. If it doesn't work, what happens then? Right. And you take those things out of the equation, then we're getting to like, do you want to be here or not? And it's it's like, can you consciously walk into more suffering? That's a big one. Making a mistake, being worse, you know, all of that. Yeah, I want to go to sleep. I'm a big fan of death with dignity. Yeah, me too. That's another podcast. That's 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 arguably overlaps some, but it is a different podcast. It does. Yeah. You know, I went to the original Hemlock Society, you know, back in the day. And yeah, I'm I'm actually pretty up on all that. But so but I want simple, whatever. And this man did that. But here's to me, I'm most curious what you think of what I'm gonna say right now. There is a space where you know this is the last thing you're ever going to do. And I stood there and the loneliness in that space, and it's the last thing I'm ever going to do, the loneliness of that act, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't move toward any closer to that loneliness of the last thing I would ever do. And I didn't light it. And I just laid down on the floor and went to sleep. That level of loneliness or that feeling was more than at 17? Yeah. It was almost like stepping into another level of suffering Mm. to be able to move through that, to light that thing. I couldn't step into that space. Next level lonely. Yeah. 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 Because I immediately, I think as most humans, we try to think, what might that feel like? Right. So I've learned, you don't know. I can say though, for me, these like moments of like the kind of loneliness where they're just, it's just, and then I think, oh, it's possible that many people who are doing the things that I don't judge, but some do, that's all they're trying to get away from. Yeah. So what, what's it like to be even closer and then be alive? At that time in my life, I was kind of a workaholic. I had a very intense job and 
I would do that. And then on Friday night, I'd come home. I would take a Valium or a sleeping pill. I would go to sleep. And when I woke up in the middle of the night, I'd take another one and go to sleep. And I'd sleep all weekend. I had to cut off my consciousness. I couldn't be in me. And then Mm -hmm. when I went to work, workaholic, workaholic, high level, really stressful. I'm not talking about therapy stuff. I'm talking about other, I've had like five or six careers. And then exhausted, high responsibility, distracting. And then I'd sleep all weekend because of the pain. And at that point in time, I tried to see a psychiatrist who, when I explained it to her, and then I went home, I saw the police come and I went out the back door and I hid at a friend's house for two days. I'm not going to a hospital. I'm not hospital material. I mean, that's how I felt about it. I have nothing against people that go to hospital. Do whatever you need to do. But I didn't want to go to a hospital. So I hid. Pretty scary. And we know probably why that therapist did what he or she did. Arguably, their hands are tied. But there's a but. I don't know how to reconcile it. But And then do you going to tell your next therapist about this stuff? Well, I know the language now. I know that if I say, if they say, do you have a plan? Do you have a date? You know, there's the questions. I know the questions. Right. You get penalized, though. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't have the vocabulary. They haven't learned mm-hmm. it. And you get penalized badly for being honest. I'm not saying I have some sort of great solution here. That's an issue. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. Trying to kill themselves. Yeah. I mean, maybe steps need to be taken. All right. The whole hospital thing I've learned also is another podcast. I'm trying to squeeze into this. But you send someone against their will. We know how not all, but a lot of these places are. And then the big, not the biggest one, but the most like eye-opening wow is the bill. You don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. If there is a God, whatever, one day, years from now, Maybe aliens will look down and say, look at that one example and say, that is the most perverse fucking thing you created as a culture. To take people mm-hmm. who are in that much pain, lock them up, take all their shit, mm-hmm. trick them, then bill them for it. Like you, I feel that if somebody is in an intractable amount of psychic pain yeah, and they need to go, I get it. But yeah. I also need to say that if you're in an intractable amount of psychic pain, but you want to stay here and try to do it better, I would definitely advocate ways to try and be here better for yourself. I don't push either agenda. But I have to say, and I feel a little little bad about saying this, is that when I see how many young people you've interviewed and how many young people are on the internet site that I, I do really like, and I'm talking 18, 20, 25, 30, 35, and I look at that and I think, I know how life can change. Like there was a five-year period between about 18, 23, 24, where I had a life where I was kind of in the right place at the right time for me. I was kind of doing the right thing for me. I was being a little more authentic. I was in graduate school in psychology. That was a very good place for me to be. I, I felt better a little bit at that time because I was in I was doing the right thing for me. And then other times in my life that I wasn't. But I think what my age and perspective can say to some degree is that I am the poster child for you never know what's going to happen, good or bad. Whether you land in the right family, whether you land in the right profession, whether you find a way to like being in yourself better, 
mm-hmm. whether you find a great therapist, whether you make a new best friend, you don't know what's going to happen. I get, think the question is like, do you feel like you're curious enough to stay and find out for a while? Mm-hmm. And if you can't, my heart breaks for you. I'm so sorry that you can't, but I would never badger or denigrate or judge you. I, I get it. But it's kind of like, I want to say, kind of take it from an old person. And you lived it. So sure. And I lived it. In my mid forties, my life did change to some degree and it got better. I still am me. I still have this, but I have better circumstances. What's really difficult is when this is innate and your circumstances suck. I've had that. Now it's innate. My circumstances do not suck. Things are out of hand with respect to the cost of things. So you have far, there are more limitations to how you can change your life. Not only, it's not just our country, but we're really good at this. You make a few mistakes, we are going to punish you forever. If you're a felon, good luck. If you have really bad credit, good luck. Yeah. I need to get out of this home. This is, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? So that adds up. I, I'm not pushing back at all on what you're saying. I just think mm-hmm. we're living in a time, and I know it's easy to be dramatic about these times, these times, but it is not the same as it was whatever period of time ago. There was a period of time not that long ago that a blue collar job buys a house. Yeah. Certain yeah. blue collar jobs do, right? If you're like an airplane mechanic, sure. But most jobs, you're getting a second job, you're paying rent. Yeah. It's hard. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. Uh, at the end of last year, I was in Mexico and I was like, is everything great there? Hell no. But it's cheaper. Horrible. Yeah. Medical care is good. They don't look at the history of my bad financial decisions if I want to rent a place. I don't know. It's tempting. Mm-hmm. How many people do you have in your life to have difficult conversations with about stuff you're going through? Three or four. Three or four. As a therapist, when you practiced, are you still currently practicing? No. No. Did you it- ever share this stuff with a patient? No. Would you ever, if you could go back and, but obviously we frame it in a certain way. I don't mean spill everything. You know, when I was doing therapy, it was many, 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 many years ago. The rules of self-disclosure were pretty tight. I don't Mm -hmm. know if they've loosened. I think they have a little bit, but it's been a really long time. And I think to that, like you said, within a certain context, I think I could find a way to communicate with somebody that I get it without having to do too much self-disclosure. I think just by my language and my whole being. I don't know if you said this, and if I missed it, I apologize. Were you ever hospitalized? Yes and no. I was once kidnapped by a hospital system that only hospitalized me after they saw that my health insurance would pay for it. It was a very ugly story. I was in very bad shape. I called an 800 number that I thought would do phone counseling for me in the middle of the night. The first 800 number was Scientology, so I got rid of them. Second 800 number, are you depressed? Do you need help? I called. They said, would you like to come in for a free counseling session? And I said, yes. We made an appointment the next day. I didn't specifically talk about suicide. I just said I was really depressed. I had to borrow a car. I was visiting my parents. I borrowed somebody's car, and I drove about a half an hour to another town, thinking it was a counseling center. It was a hospital. I didn't know that. And I went in, a nurse sat me down. The first question was, do you have health insurance? And I did. I said, yeah, let me see your card. 
They went out of the room with my card. And then four men came in the room and said, we're locking you up. And I said, no, I was 36. No. And the nurse, psychiatric nurse said, you can either walk with them or they can drag you. How would you like to enter the ward? So I got, I walked in. This is before cell phone. This, I, there was a pay phone and I had some quarters and I spent 10 hours getting out. I started with therapists. I started trying to talk to the doctors there. I started within the system. And then I got smart and I said, I need a lawyer. So in the middle of the night, I'm calling lawyer to say, I'm not crazy. And I've been locked up in a psych ward and I need you to get me out. How well is that received? I found a lawyer who got me out. And then that hospital system exploded as a scam. And then I ended up with the top, one of the top newspapers in the country interviewing me for the story. And my whole story without my name was written up in a very major newspaper as an example of what this organization did. Um, And probably there's others. There's only one word to describe those people. I'm sorry. I know they've been through their own trauma. There's a word for it in our language and it's criminals. That's it. That's the most appropriate word. It's the right word. It's the best word. Let's not candy coat it. Yeah. On this psych ward, I interviewed everybody because that's what I do, right? That's kind of funny. I made friends with everybody. The patients were great. Yep. Usually are, right? Usually. There was this one guy in a wheelchair, taught me everything I needed to know about how to try to get out of there. I ignored the staff because they were worthless to me. They were part of the scam. I befriended the patients. They were very supportive and kind. And I got myself they were not all there as a scam like I was. Some of them were really, really hurting. And I sat with them and I listened to them. <laughs> that's what you do well. But also it should be said, that's probably not the right hospital for them. Probably. No, it was a scam. Yes. Right, right. So it was terrifying. I had to call my parents and tell them why I wasn't coming home. And my father, he came. I said, just bring me a lot of quarters. I'm trying to get a lawyer. And he came And he stood outside a window and he had a chair. He had taken the lobby and he goes, I'm going to throw this chair through the glass window and get you out. Wow. And I was kind of like, I do have a daddy. (laughs) Wow. There we go. (laughs) They show up when you least expect. It's like, wow. So anyway, he didn't, but he would have. I came from some tough guys. That's how they show. Uh, I didn't. uh, Did I ask you how many people know about either attempt? Today, no one. At the time, the first attempt, I probably told one friend. And the second, I think maybe three people knew about it. And are you saying that they've since passed? No, I'm just not. I don't live in that part of the world anymore. And I, well, one of them has passed. There's probably one left that knows about the second attempt that I'm still close to. I doubt she'll remember it because when I had to run from being hospitalized, I hid it for does anything help you feel better? My drug of choice is books, reading, listening to books, listening to podcasts. Did you ever get a diagnosis that you agree with? Yeah, I'm, I, I've been diagnosed as ser- you know, uh, anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, cyclothymic depression. What's that mean, cyclothymic? I'd have to look it up. It was so long ago. It's kind of like there's a word anhedonia where you're sort of like, recurring severe depression. I did have one psychiatrist, and and this may be helpful to people. He once told me that 
I don't really think you're that depressed. I think you're so anxious that you're exhausted. And again, medication is a whole other topic. I'm not medicated. So I do know people that are on the right psychotropic cocktail and it helps them. Very encouraging. I know two people who had life-changing, excellent therapy experiences. If you're willing to try something, try something. If you can afford it. If you can afford it. Yeah. When was the last time that you actively thought about ending your life? I think that part of what made me seek out your podcast is about three months ago, I got very, very severely acute. And what does that look like? In bed for days? Yes. Withdrawn, constantly trying to come up with a plan. You know, how do I get Nebutal in Mexico? How can I do whatever I can do to make this quick and painless? That's not something you would share with your husband, I assume? I did share a little bit of it with him. I said to him, I am so destroyed right now that I'm in a cycle of needing to end my life. Mm. I did tell him that. How did he take that? How did he respond? He's, you know, he sits down next to me and he goes, what can I do? Oh, I like him. Then every 30 or 60 minutes, pokes his head in and say, can I do anything? Can I do anything? I'm glad the other ones didn't work out. This was the key. (laughs) I know it was really hard at the time. I get it. (laughs) Okay, so now is the myth question. Are there any myths you want to call out or dispel? The myth that suicidal people are weak. Mm -hmm. They all do it for the same reason, revenge or to, you know, take it out on somebody else or whatever. Those are all, to me, they're all myths. I'm saying maybe somebody, but I am against any platitudes about this subject. You can only travel as far with a therapist, a friend, or whatever as they've traveled in themselves. That's not a myth. Like I said in the beginning, don't spend time speaking Russian to somebody that only hears Spanish. You got to find common language. Any myth that all depressed people are, all suicidal people are, any of it, we're unique. We're all unique. We share some things. But our stories are unique, which is very much proven by your podcast. We got here different ways. We handle it differently, manage the relationships with ourselves differently. But I think we all kind of have to look out for each other. Earlier, I said, let's close with this thing. We want the abridged version of how to pick a therapist. In addition to gender and age, the gender you want to relate to, at least your age or older, read what they studied. Because any therapist you pick is going to have 50 things that they say that is their specialty. Right. Ask them, what clientele do you like to work with the most? When you're uncomfortable in a client relationship, what makes you uncomfortable? Interview Mm -hmm. them. How do you work with and pose what you feel you need to work on? How long do you think that'll take? How many people have you seen like me and what are they like today? I can't promise you you're going to get honest answers. You will know by those kinds of questions. I can come up with 10 more, but you will know by asking those kinds of questions. Do they evade your question? Right. Do they dismiss your question? Do they, what do you think of the answer? Did you feel your question was heard? Did they turn it around on you? Like, oh, well, why are you asking me that? Now, I am assuming a level of psychological sophistication in our very vulnerable person who wants therapy. And that's not the norm. 
Right. That's why I feel like I'd like to teach people how to do this. Because if someone said to me, I need a therapist because, or I think I need a therapist because, then you develop the questions for that reason, for that. And you ask those questions. If a therapist won't get on the phone with you for a half an hour before they ever see you and not charge you for this conversation, the whole point is I'm vulnerable. I need to know if you're a good match for me. Do psychologists, in as much as you know, in 2023, ever do a 30-minute free thing? Yeah, some of them will. Would it be an appropriate question, and I don't have the exact words to say, should I ever feel suicidal? And I'm not, just to be very clear, but should I ever feel that way? How do you tend to approach those conversations? I have asked that. 98% of the time, if you ask that question, the therapist is going to say, are you feeling suicidal now? Exactly, exactly. They're not going to call the police unless you answer the questions in the way that leads Also, them. you're not their therapist yet. Right. I think the thing to do might be, well, I don't really think it would matter. I, I might ask somebody, what kind of treatment plan do you propose for severe depression? Can't say the S word. Can't even talk about it. I know, I'm guessing you could probably handle that conversation, but you have to do it under this pressure. Mm-hmm. And that's why the internet site that I, I'm on and seeking you out, I wanted to seek you out because sometimes I desperately need to speak uncensored. I think one of the reasons I fail so badly at therapy is that I get totally intellectual. I don't know how to access how I feel because I feel so guarded. When you're hiding in therapy, well, that's not good. <laughs> Probably not, no. <laughs> Anyway, I could go on and on. Anything else you want to ask me? Well, well, yes. I want to know the name of the website. What's the name of the website? Oh, it's called SS, Sanctioned Suicide. The other um, thing I want to say is there'll come a day where I'll probably get shut down. That's what I'm predicting. Oh, wow. Not my goal. No one's ever threatened me. No one's ever emailed me. Nothing. It just takes one person. I think, you know, with Sanctioned Suicide, I think one of their rules, you can't provide somebody with a means. If somebody went on and said, hi, I, I need to go tomorrow. Does anybody have any sodium nitrate or a gun or you know whatever? You can't say, oh yeah, you know, my name is Timmy and I'll give you my gun. I mean, you, you can't provide a means. That would probably shut them down. Unfortunately, or just realistically, you have to walk the line of open communication but I think one of the reasons that I said some of the things I said was to be a little protective of you, where I say, I wouldn't denigrate anybody who needed to do this, and I get it. But I also feel that, like I said, if you have some curiosity, if you can do one breath at a time, if yeah. you can stay here and hang in there a little bit, from my vantage point, circumstances do change. They do change, yes. They do change. They may not change the way you like it or not. Mm -hmm. I'm not promising anything. But I think for your survival, yes, you have to have those little nuggets here and there. I would be afraid of the religious right. (laughs) I think that if somebody's going to blow the whistle, it's going to be their whistle. And you're in the South. What on earth are you doing this? (laughs) That is a question I keep asking myself. Yes. 
So I have a question. There's a woman I know who has been thinking about ending her life for some time, myriad reasons. And I want your thoughts on that in terms of not her choice, but something I'm thinking about with respect to documenting this experience, this journey, if you want to call it that, from where she is now until she's no longer here. Interesting. It would be interesting to me because I've done a lot of research into Pegasus and Dignitas because Pegasus recently allowed the death with dignity for a woman and her sister for psychological, emotional reasons. The debate is we want to be appropriate and say that emotional and psychic pain is as bad or worse than as physical pain, but we're not going to give you that in terms of okaying the ability to peacefully end your life because of that. That's a big deal now. I joined something called FEN, F-E-N, which is called Final Exit Network. And I went to uh, one of their discussions and it was a major discussion there because most people that are members of FEN or they're an offshoot called Compassion and Choices, Mm -hmm. which is very big. It's a lot of older people who've seen parents and spouses have horrible end-of-life experiences. It's very much focused toward the physical, but I think chronicling, and some of them have chronicled some people's end-of-life in utilizing these services. It would be interesting to ask her if in being aware of these organizations, particularly FEN, Compassion and Choices, has she reached out for any type of death with dignity assistance based upon what's going on with her physically? Is she planning to? What's that like? And is it something she might be interested in, interested in chronicling? The population is aging. You know, there's a lot more baby boomers like me, like we're kind of it now. You know, we're next up to bat, so to speak. This is getting to be bigger. She said in the very last part of her final post, the last post, I don't mean final post. Mm-hmm. She says, I'm beginning to rethink the word suicide, much better to think of it as, quote, liberation from one plane to another. I just want to hear that more. I don't want to hear (laughs) that more. I just want to hear, I'm just really curious about people. But this is one of the things that is under-discussed, unknown. One of the things that draws me to it, it's not the only thing, is when we're talking about this stuff, all kinds of other things come up. I learned a little bit about your love life today. I learned a little bit about your parents study. Not much, but it's yeah. not just as if it's an hour conversation on just the thing. The thing is everything. It's your yeah. life. And so I find it absolutely fascinating. One of the really big reasons I do it is far more selfish than anything else, you know? And I don't I don't have a problem with that. It's mm-hmm. like when I'm doing this, I'm having these conversations and to a little bit of a lesser degree, but even part of it is just editing and listening to it again. Like I'm in a lane that feels healthy for me. And people say, how do you do it? Not that I want to say it a lot. It comes up. How are you taking care of yourself? I'm like, this is taking care of myself as bizarre mm-hmm. as it sounds. Weirdly, maybe feel better. And it's you like, know, well, because I did something that mattered to me. It's very healing to connect to someone yeah. on a real level. It's got to be healing. It just is. Whatever happens, your gift is you know how to do that. You can connect. You can go to these places with people that are very personal and very intense. You have an atmosphere about you where I knew I'm going to connect with you. I could probably talk to you for 12 hours. (laughs) Um, We were never going to run out of stuff to talk about. You're going to treat it respectfully. When you use your gift, it's, it, it's healing. 
It just is. One other thing I want to say just before we go, because I didn't get to say it, and that is just that I don't think people who are suicidal are seeking death. They're seeking an absence of pain. Yeah. And I think that's another myth. We really want to just stop. So Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Pretty much hard to argue that we're not biologically programmed to not die. Yeah. To want to die or simply not be in pain and go through with it. You're in a lot of pain. You know, the other thing, and this sort of puts it all together, is just that no one is going to listen to a podcast or read a book about suicide and end their life because of that book or that podcast. It's just what you said. It's very complicated. There's family, there's relationships, there's belief systems, there's drug use. There's a million things that make us us and lead some of us to seek an absence of pain. It's not because somebody listened to a podcast. And that's that's where the fallacy is in getting rid of sanctioned suicide or you or anything else. It's a fallacy. You know, we we are so cooked before we get to you. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you have to have compassion for the kind of pain people are in. 100%. Yep. Well, R, this has been lovely. I really appreciate meeting you and you joining me and talking so openly. So thanks. Thank you. I really love meeting you. Till we meet again. Till we meet again. All right. Good night. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to R out in California. Thanks very much, R. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Check the show notes for all kinds of other things, ways to participate, contribute, learn more. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review Suicide Noted. It really does help people find the podcast. And well, we want more people to find the podcast. Remember, this is mostly about helping people as best we can feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And we are grateful for your support. And that is all for episode number 176. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.